Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craft for life. Thank you for taking some time to join me for this 11th instalment of my Curiosity Cabinet, whether you are new to the podcast or a returning listener. I would especially like to thank everybody who contacted me after last episode to share their own tales, experiences, successes and frustrations about fitting. It's always lovely to hear that I'm talking about issues that resonate, and particularly so when my musings feel a bit like a rant. For new listeners, I'm Meg and I live in London in the UK. In my podcast, I explore my love of natural materials and the act of making from the perspective of somebody concerned about environmental and ethical issues. In practice, this means I spend a lot of time exploring materials and looking for ways to support small producers, but it also involves me looking at my own making behaviour. The why of making is just as important to me as the what and the how. And the starting point is always curiosity. My curiosity about the material world, about other people and about myself. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M, and that is with a hyphen between each word. As always, I will link all this information and anything I mention in the podcast in the show notes, which are available on my website, Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? First, I shall review a British breed wool that Blacker is launching at Edinburgh Yarn Festival. After that, I will share the latest instalment of my sock experiment, and I shall also announce the winner of the giveaway of the Socks 2018 ebook. And finally, I'll be talking about a spot of tool making. So I hope you are settled in with a cup of tea and a whip, or are pottering in the kitchen or garden shed, as I know some of you listen to the podcasts while cooking or gardening. And let's get started. Edinburgh Yarn Festival kicks off next week, and many of the wool producers will be showcasing their latest yarns. At this year's event, Blacker Yarns, the sponsor of the podcast lounge, will be relaunching its Jacob Breedwool, and the company has very kindly sent me a shade card to show what they have done with the range, and a couple of small samples to try out. I was excited to have the opportunity to swatch with this wool as I rate Jacob pretty highly. I have a number of items in my wardrobe and accessories knit in Jacob wool from other brands and in my experience it's a good workhorse yarn. It's not as soft as a BFL or as cosy as a Shetland but I can quite happily wear it as a cardigan next to my skin and it wears very well. I often think that wool is like food, i.e. it's influenced by the seed stock, the land, the year and the preparation. I was therefore really interested to see how wool from the same basic breed differs from producer to producer, so it was a real treat to be able to test run Blacker Yarns Jacob. First up, some information about the breed. As always, this comes from the Fleece and Fibre Source book by Deb Robson and Carol Eucarius. Jacob are very cute sheep with anything from one to three pairs of horns and have spotted fleece, mainly creamy white with blotches of brown, brown-black, or even a mix of greys called lilac. These piebald sheep have been bred in England for several centuries and were originally kept as ornamental sheep by the landed gentry, but are now in the UK at least more commonly regarded as meat sheep. These wools have a staple of 3 to 7 inches, which is about 7.5 to say 17 centimetres, and a micron count of 25 to 35, although some fleeces might be finer or coarser. The crimp is moderate and the coarser fleeces will also contain some kemp, which can give the wool quite a tweedy feel. Some of the fleeces can also have a slight luster. 
Turning to Blacker's Jacob range, Sue's team are really playing to the range of natural colours that the sheep produce. The basis of the new range is a natural shade gradient made up of four colours. A cream called clay at one end and a grey-brown called basalt at the other end and two mild shades, one pale called milestone and a darker one called granite in between. Typically a mild wool is made by plying spun yarn of different shades together but Blacker has created the mild effect at the spinning stage which produces a much more subtle overall tone. The natural shades are available in four ply and a decay weight. Blacker has then overdyed the natural gradient to achieve a palette of mild gradients. At this stage the palette is very limited, although Blacker may expand that going forward. There is one coloured decay gradient which is called purple. I would say that it is a purple with a strong pink tone. Think a deep version of the typical foxglove. Then there are two coloured gradients in the four-ply, a green and a blue. At the clay end of the spectrum I would liken the pale green to a celadon glaze and it darkens into a deep stony green. The dark blue ranges from a peacock teal blue to an almost petrol shade of blue. Although these colours are very interesting and attractive, and I particularly like the pale green buzzled, my preference naturally went to the undyed shades. And as luck would have it, Blacker Yarns sent me a little of the undyed milestone and buzzled to try in the four-ply weight. The milestone shade is a warm oatmeal marl, and the buzzled is a deep warm grey with a hint of a luster. This luster is not the otherworldly sheen of a Gotland. Rather, it reminds me of the glint of mineral you occasionally spot in a stone or a rock. A glint that catches your eye, but is gone almost as soon as you pick the stone up to examine it closer. A real tantalising will-o'-the-wisp type luster. In the hand, the ball of wool feels as if they have a bit of a grip to it, but it's not what I would call crunchy or scritchy. Think digestive biscuit rather than rich tea, or leather rather than rubber sole. That relative smoothness is partly due to the preparation, the worsted spinning, but I suspect it is also due to blacker selecting fleeces at the finer end of the micron count. As I know from experience that I can easily wear this breed next to my skin, I swatched to see how Blacker's Jacob would perform with different types of knitting, based on the kind of patterns I have in my queue. I therefore tested it with a simple lace pattern and over a lattice pattern of travelling stitches and cables to check the stitch definition. Pre-blocking, the lace pattern was a little lost, but this improved immensely on blocking as the stitches filled out as the wool bloomed. The wool has a very slight halo, but not one that muddies lace. I would say that if I were to knit a lace in the undyed basalt, I would probably stick to a relatively straightforward lace pattern and avoid anything too intricate, but would be more adventurous with the dyed colours. In my opinion, the Jacob really excels in travelling stitches and cables. I worked up a swatch in the undyed milestone using a double lattice pattern. Even before blocking, the cable stood out beautifully against the reverse stocking stitch background. In fact, I loved this effect so much that I tried another lattice swatch in the basalt. The other characteristic that really struck me was the drapiness of the fabric that this wool produces. Admittedly, I was working in a four-ply rather than a DK, but knitting with 3.25mm or 3 US needles, I managed to produce a very drapey swatch, one which became even more pronounced upon blocking. Both the four-ply and the DK come in 50 gram balls, and for that you get 175 metres or 190 yards, and 110 metres or 119 yards, respectively. Blacker has not yet confirmed the price of the yarn, but I suspect that it will be somewhere in the region of the mohair or Lyonnaise blends.
It's very easy to get caught up with the hype of new walls being launched at fibre festivals, and often we can so easily be enticed by the latest novelty, a stunning blend or a seductive colour. Blacker Yarn's Jacob, by contrast, is almost an unassuming wool, but one that I know will produce warm, long-lasting core wardrobe garments that are stylish in a very no-nonsense and understated way. I will therefore definitely be adding this wool to my EYF shopping list. In fact, I think it would lend itself very well to something like Kate Davies' Stronachlachard sleeveless pullover or Carrie Westerman's marginalia sweater. Furthermore, as Blacker reckons this wool is robust enough for socks, I shall definitely be buying some for my nylon-free sock experiment. Speaking of my nylon-free sock experiment, I've been working on my next test pair of socks and knitting up one of the patterns from Making Stories Socks 2018 collection. I had originally planned to cast on the Origins socks by Jessica Gore, as I had a skein of the same yarn used in the pattern in my wool pantry. As the brain fog has been bad recently and I knew I would be travelling, I chose to knit the Arising socks by Linda Debeck instead. This pattern is easier, consisting of a simple four-row repeat that even my foggy brain could cope with. I still use the Ignea blend from Ovis etc, which I bought from Saskia directly at last year's Nottingham Yarn Expo. I normally favour British walls, but for this experiment to be as relevant and inspiring for as many knitters as possible, I decided to road test a wider range of yarn blends. Ignea is a blend of 60% non-superwash South American wool, I suspect some kind of Corriadale or Merino blend, with 20% silk and 20% Raimi. Raimi is a fibre derived from a kind of nettle and has been used to make textiles for at least 2,000 years in China. Raimi also gained use in Europe in the early 20th century and was even used to make German army uniforms during World War I. When I first got talking to Saskia, the Dutch dyer behind Ovis etc, she asked me what my views were on Raimi, because it is a yarn that needs chemical processing before spinning, unlike plant-based fibres like cotton and linen. I had to acknowledge that this was about the extent of my knowledge of the fibre too, but that I would enjoy looking into the fibre in more detail. Raimi is a bast fibre like linen, hemp and jute, which means the fibre comes from the inner bark of the plant. The extraction process is labour-intensive, and additionally, unlike linen or hemp, Raimi fibres also need to be degummed before they can be spun. It is this stage of the process that involves chemicals. Details of the chemical process are sketchy, partly due to the commercial secrecy that governs the process, but also due to the lack of detailed assessments. I think this is actually due to the fact that this fibre has a tiny market share and nobody has bothered to study it in detail. However, based on the limited studies I've read, Raimi is generally considered to have a lower impact than bamboo fibres. As both bamboo and Raimi are fast-growing plants that require little water and few pesticides, the difference in their impact classification is potentially due to the impact of the processing phase. Bamboo has to undergo a much more involved chemical process to turn it into a spinnable viscose yarn, whereas Raimi is simply degummed. Processing is, however, only one aspect of the sustainability assessment of a fibre. Its characteristics and performance are another. Raimi is typically a strong fibre, especially when wet, but can nevertheless be brittle, particularly if subjected to regular folding. It is therefore typically used in blends, as is the case in the Egnea yarn. Raimi also lacks elasticity, which can impact on its performance, although this may be mitigated by careful blending. 
The fibre also has some antibacterial properties, has a strong luster and takes dyes very easily. In light of all this, I was even more intrigued about the Ignea blend. The yarn consists of 60% high twist wool and 40% of high luster, high strength but low elasticity fibres, so I'm wondering what this will mean for socks. The high twist and luster certainly produce a yarn with a lovely silky hand, which will feel similar to some of the Superwash BFL Silk or Superwash Merino Nylon blends on the market. Due to the high twist, and with 425 metres or 460 yarns per 100 grams, this wool achieves the kind of tension on small needles that knitters are used to, approximately 8 stitches per inch. And fabulous stitch definition too. Cables really pop in this yarn, as I suspect would lace. As such, I think this wool might be a good option for somebody who is eager to try a nylon-free non-superwash blend, but is not necessarily ready to use a more crunchy, woolly yarn. I've almost finished my first sock, and knitting with the yarn, it feels very strong, even at a pretty standard sock tension. My only slight niggle of doubt is whether the lack of elasticity in the Silk and Raimi will mean that the sock doesn't have as much recovery as in other blends. By that I mean, will the fabric bounce back into its original shape? I may be overthinking things a bit, but this is the first time I've worked with a yarn containing Raimi, so I'm on a journey of exploration. A different degree of recovery compared to a wool nylon or wool mohair blend is certainly not a deal breaker. After all, even with a typical sock yarn, I've had to play around with size and tension to get a sock that has enough negative ease and recovery to stay up. Not so much when I first try the sock on, but in subsequent wears. I typically knit socks at a smaller circumference than recommended, as in my experience, sock yarns consisting of superwashed wool expand with wear and become a little saggy. Even though recovery considerations won't put me off using the Agnea blend, they do mean I need to think about pairing the yarn with the right pattern, so the stitch pattern can aid the recovery. And I'm wondering whether I should have opted for a different pattern in this case. The origin pattern, which uses this yarn, consists of travelling rib, which I suspect creates a degree of negative ease and memory. The arising socks are a cabled pattern, so I assumed that negative ease and memory would be similar. Stupidly though, I didn't read the pattern through before casting on. The socks are knit toe up, and I assumed the cable pattern that runs up the foot would be picked up at the back of the leg after turning the heel. I only realised once I got there that the side and back of the legs are knit in plain stocking stitch. I'm now almost at the cuff, and I'm not sure yet how much recovery this pattern provides. Rather than rip the whole project out, I will test this sock whilst working on the foot of the next one. And if I feel it is necessary, I can always go back, rip out the heel, and take the cable pattern all the way around the foot. As I've mentioned before, this nylon-free sock experiment is really making me think in terms of materials and engineering. One of the things I really enjoy about making is that it allows me to really get to know materials and understand the interaction between material and form. I should also talk about the colour, though. I'm not sure what it's called, as the name was not included on the yarn label, but the yarn that I'm working with is a deep, semi-solid coral with a strong luster. This luster is partly due to the high silk content, but also, I suspect, due to how the Raimi has reacted with the dye. I know I mentioned earlier that Raimi generally takes dye very well. That said, here we've got a blend of animal and plant fibre, and I know that Saskia uses GOTS-approved acid dyes, which were especially designed to work on animal fibres. 
I therefore suspect that the raby has retained quite a lot of its beautiful lustrous white and is adding an almost shimmering undertone to the coral which provides a lot more depth. At this stage I can't comment on how durable the Ignea blend is as a sock yarn, I'll come back to that in future episodes. But from the knitting experience so far, I think Ovis Etc's Ignea blend is a good gateway yarn for someone who is eager to try something nylon free but still work with a yarn that feels familiar. I would however say think carefully about which pattern you use. Due to the silk content and high luster, as well as a price tag of €23 Euros for 100 grams, which is about £20, I would definitely save this yarn for a special pair of socks. I think it would be wasted on a plain vanilla or a simple rib sock. I think I would keep this yarn for a pair of socks that has a beautiful cable or lace pattern combined with some rib to ensure that there is good recovery. If this yarn sounds appealing but you prefer a less engineering-like approach to sock knitting, you could also look at Ovis Etc's Herber Blend. I have not tried this yarn yet, but this sport weight blend is made up of 80% non-superwash wool and 20% ramy, so I don't think there will be any issues with recovery here. As we're on the topic of socks, now is a good time to announce the winner of the most recent giveaway. Last episode I mentioned that Hannah-Lisa Haferkamp and Verena Kors, the ladies behind Making Stories, had offered a copy of their ebook Socks 2018. Thank you to everybody who entered that giveaway and provided some useful feedback on my three questions. There were 36 entries in total and random.org selected number 15. This is H. Gal Bally who is Helen from Melbourne in Australia. I normally read out the comments made by the winning entry, but as I plan to review and collate all the feedback on the three questions and talk about the findings in a future show, I shall just arrange for Helen to receive her prize. Also last episode, I announced that Freya22 was the winner of the giveaway of a physical copy of Carrie Westerman's This Thing and Paper. Freya, as you've not contacted me yet, could you please contact me by direct message on Ravelry with your postal address as soon as possible? If I don't hear from you by the time I record the next episode, I shall draw another winner. Finally, I thought I would share a spot of tool making that has kept me busy recently. Anybody who has been listening to this podcast for some time may have noticed that I tend to talk a lot about materials, but I rarely touch upon tools. It's not that I don't like quality tools and equipment, rather that I adopt a minimalist approach to them. It is very easy in this day and age to get caught up in merchandising and the pressure for the latest gadget, and before long a craft can cost a fortune. As I love nothing more than to empower people to try their hands at making without breaking the bank, I prefer to work with a basic set of tools. After all, people have been making for millennia, often with limited and basic equipment. I stick to simple rules. Start with a minimum of basic tools. Keep them clean and sharp. That was drilled into me by both my parents. And only extend the toolbox when I know what tasks I will do regularly and what tools will really make the job easier. Where sewing is concerned, this meant I started with a simple sewing machine that came with a few basic footers. When I moved on to zips, I bought an invisible zip footer. Later, when I started knitting jersey, I bought a walking foot, and so on. 
My recent sustained efforts to perfect tops from a shirt to a camisole has seen me add another piece of equipment to my sewing box, a tailor's ham. A tailor's ham is a small, well-stuffed cushion that you use when pressing 3D parts of a garment, like a bust dart or a shoulder. It's not an essential tool. Until now, I've been making do with a rolled-up towel. However, a firm-shaped cushion provides greater resistance and a cleaner finish. As achieving a good fit and finish is important to me, I decided that adding a ham would not be an indulgence. And what's more, it's a bit of kit I could add without any cost. Yes, I could have popped along to John Lewis or online and have bought one, but as it's ultimately just a small, well-stuffed cushion, I decided to make one. I found a tutorial on the Tilly and the Buttons blog, which in turn uses free templates from Maven Patterns. The tutorial includes instructions and templates for both a ham and a sausage, a similar cushion designed to help when pressing sleeves. The item is very easy to run up in an afternoon, and is a great way to use up scraps of sturdy fabric. The pattern recommends something like cotton canvas or ticking, but I just use two layers of heavyweight fabric. For the second layer of the top of the ham, I actually used some brushed cotton that I had recycled from an old pair of Mr M's pyjamas, as this fabric is less slippy than the other cotton scraps I used. To make the shaped cushion, the pattern involves cutting two pieces and putting four darts into each, then wrong sides together, stitching them together, leaving a hole to turn it the right way around and stuff the cushion. Traditionally, tailors' hams and sausages are stuffed with wood shavings or sawdust to produce a really firm cushion. As neither Mr M or I do much woodwork-related DIY, I didn't have a pile of waste sawdust. In my thrifty, zero-waste mindset, I briefly considered reaching out to a couple of woodcarvers I know to see if I could collect a bag of wood shavings. However, as most of them worked with walnut, I figured that this wouldn't be the brightest move. Instead, I decided to clear out Mr M's sock drawer, a job I had been putting off for some time. I found many old socks that were worn beyond repair, shredded them and stuffed them into the ham. I stitched the hole closed with a simple slip stitch, which is just visible enough to allow me to add additional stuffing in the future if necessary. The finished tailor's ham is not quite as sturdy as a shop-bought one, but considerably firmer than a folded towel. And yes, I could have popped online and ordered one, but there is something deeply satisfying about making some of your own tools and equipment. And it's not just about saving some pennies and using up odds and ends. If making our own clothes feels empowering, making our own tools multiplies that sense. It adds another layer of capability and resilience and really connects me to hundreds of generations of makers down the ages. In many ways, it's similar to the difference between making a meal from scratch and making your own ingredients. For example, making a loaf of bread is wonderful, but making a sourdough, which involves capturing and nurturing your own rising agent, feels truly visceral. Cooking up a soup or a stock with seasonal vegetables is amazing, but doing so with vegetables that we have grown ourselves or foraged deepens the experience. And even more so if some of the vegetables have grown from seeds saved from a previous year's sowing. In this fast-paced world, with our limited time, tools and access to materials, we will never be able to make all the tools and equipment we need. And that's not the point either. But once in a while, it's nice to remind ourselves that we are capable of meeting more of our own needs than retailers and marketing companies would have us believe. I'm afraid that's all for this episode. This was always going to be a short episode, as February is a short month, and I have lots more jobs to tick off before disappearing up to Edinburgh for nearly five days of wool and friendship.
So I look forward to catching up with any of you who will be attending Edinburgh Yarn Festival. And to everybody else, wherever you are in the world, I hope you enjoy lots of pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be. Until the next time. Bye.